0: Clovis, building a healthy life together.
1: What's up, everybody? Justin Nault here with another episode of the Clovis Culture Podcast. Today's episode is one that myself and the entire Clovis tribe have waited a very long time for. In this episode, I welcome back two previous podcast guests, Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf, co-authors of an amazing new book called Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat why well-raised meat is good for you and good for the planet. Alongside the release of this fantastic book, Diana Rogers has created a stunning documentary film by the same title, Sacred Cow, set to release in the coming months. And I have been fortunate enough to see a rough cut of the film and was extremely impressed. It's beautifully done, and the narrator is actually Nick Offerman, made famous by the TV show Parks and Rec, where he plays the beloved character Ron Swanson, lover of bacon, perfect for this film project. Now, before I continue, please, please, I urge you to listen to this entire intro as I will outline the best way to support Sacred Cow and get your hands on some incredibly generous bonuses for pre-ordering the book. For those of you who may not know this, I came into the Sacred Cow project as an early financial backer of the project. My dad and I teamed up to finance the project almost immediately after meeting Diana and hearing her share her mission and vision with us. On a personal level, I wholeheartedly believe that this is one of the most important topics of our lifetimes, and that is not an exaggeration at all. As you'll hear us discuss uh, all throughout this podcast, the ripple effects of our food systems impact each and every one of us. They impact you, they impact your children, and generations to come, quite literally. And this current push toward a plant-based world that we keep seeing in the mainstream— would be one of the most catastrophic events in all of human history and we're already walking that tightrope and things need to be corrected as soon as possible. With that said, this episode may really challenge you and the common theme throughout the episode, in my opinion, is simply critical thinking. We have an epidemic lack of critical thinking in our society in 2020 and we're seeing the consequences of that run rampant right now. The seemingly willful inability to view complex issues holistically has been responsible for the biggest failures in modern history, namely mainstream medicine, government dietary guidelines, and global economics, which all play a role in 88% of the American population currently suffering from metabolic dysfunction. To say nothing of the stark contrast between food systems and food availability in the wealthiest communities versus the poorest communities in our country. I also want to take a moment to let you know that because topics such as climate change and nutrition have become so dogmatic and politicized in our society that both Diana and Rob have sacrificed tremendously to make this book and film a reality. But I know Rob would agree with me in saying that no one has fought so hard and sacrificed so much as Diana to make these projects happen. It's truly unbelievable the amount of vitriol a person has to face to simply be so bold as to state that red meat, a staple in the human diet for millions of years, might be healthy for humans. The pushback is so violent, you may as well be suggesting that the Earth is flat. However, as you'll learn when you read Sacred Cow and watch the film, all of the science is on our side, meaning those of us who truly believe in regenerative agriculture as the answer to so many of our problems today. From the economics of our food system, to reversing climate change, to improving our health as a species. If I had to choose one quote from this episode, which I found to be the most impactful, it would be this quote from Rob. A thousand years from now,
2: if humans still exist on the planet, we will be using regenerative agriculture. The question is, will we arrive at that at an informed, conscious process, or will this be after a massive collapse and war and famine, and this is all that we're
1: left with? Just let those words truly sink in. At this point, it is an irrefutable fact that our current food systems are not sustainable. This conversation is not about veganism. It's not about paleo. It's not about left versus right or any other tribal us versus them labels that people want to put on these topics. It is about the future of our species. Because, make no mistake... The Earth will be just fine long after us humans have destroyed ourselves. Mother Nature will heal and bounce right back after we're gone, as she has always done. The funny thing is that when Mother Nature bounces back and heals herself, the ecosystems on the planet will look a whole lot like the ecosystems built and supported by regenerative agriculture. This truly is a conversation about the preservation of the human race. If people are so biased that they can't see that, and this episode triggers them in some way, I really don't know what to say to those folks at this point. Alright, I know I'm ranting here, and I promise we'll get into the episode in just a minute, but first, as promised, I need to give you explicit details on the very best way to support Sacred Cow. Head to Amazon right now and pre-order your copy of Sacred Cow. To have the biggest impact, please consider purchasing a physical copy of the book rather than a digital copy like Kindle or audiobook. And if you are going to purchase a Kindle version or an audiobook, please, please consider also grabbing a physical copy of the book to help support this project. Another important note, if you decide to purchase multiple copies and I hope you do, we ask that you make separate purchases for each copy you order. This makes a significant difference in rankings for the book, as each purchase only counts as one sale, even if you buy multiple copies. So again, order physical copies of the book and complete a separate transaction for each copy you buy. Also, if you place your pre-order before July 14th, you will receive a boatload of incredible bonuses, including Simply Meat Your Guide to Cooking Better Meat, an ebook which normally sells for $18.95. You'll get Flavor in No Time Flat, a great resource full of sauce recipes and other fun additions to keep your healthy meals delicious, easy, and not boring. You'll also get a preview chapter of Sacred Cow. This chapter is called Meat as a Scapegoat. How did meat become the most polarizing food that we eat? You'll get seven full-length interviews from the film, over 4.5 hours of footage, including interviews with nutrition experts like Chris Masterjohn, PhD. You'll get exclusive discounts off Better Meat and more. Diana and Rob have reached out to some of their favorite food businesses, and they've agreed to offer special discounts just to those who pre-order Sacred Cow. And last but not least, the most exciting bonus, you will get a free sneak peek preview link to the film. Yes, you heard that right. Anyone who submits their pre-order receipt by July 14th will be among the first to watch the film when it comes out. And again, these bonuses are only available if you pre-order the book by July 14th. After that, they go away. So please, head to Amazon, Follow the instructions as I've detailed them here and pre-order Sacred Cow. I will have all of this information detailed for you in the show notes at IamClovis.com slash Sacred Cow. Again, IamClovis.com slash Sacred Cow. You can also find everything you need to know about the Sacred Cow book and documentary film at SacredCow.info. Again, SacredCow.info. I-N-F-O. All right. I will leave it at that for now. Enjoy this conversation with Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and leave me a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. I know that leaving a podcast review can be quite tricky, so I have made this as easy as possible for you. All you have to do is visit ratethispodcast.com slash Clovis. Again, rate thispodcast.com slash Clovis. I've also included this link in the show notes so you can just click that link and it will show you a list of podcast platforms. Select your favorite podcast platform and you will see step-by-step on-screen instructions for exactly how to leave a podcast review each and every review counts. It really, really helps and it truly means the world to me. Thank you. As always, this episode is brought to you by Clovis. I am the founder and CEO of Clovis and I am in the business of changing people's lives for the better. I am a certified nutritional therapist and I have helped over 1,000 people just like you transform their health and wellness. And I want to work with you. To prove it, I'm going to give you a free 7-day trial which will give you full-blown access to all of the exclusive members-only content that Clovis has to offer. Just visit iamclovis.com/start. I-A-M-C-L-O-V-I-S dot com slash start. You will find videos of yours truly, and you will find some incredible transformation stories from real-life Clovis clients. You will be shocked by the incredible stories that these brave individuals have to tell, stories of full-blown life transformation 50 pounds in eight weeks 40 pounds in 60 days 19 pounds in 21 days 100 pounds in six months you name it i have a client who has done it and you can too check out iamclovis.com start and get started with your free trial today if you'd like to check out my physical products i am offering you a very special deal on the perfect paleo powder 30 percent off your first purchase in fact that 30 discount Discount will be applied to your entire cart for your first purchase at iamclovis.com. Head over to iamclovis.com, check out the Perfect Paleo Powder and all the other products that I have available, and you will get 30% off your first purchase. Just use promo code perfectpodcast, all one word, P-E-R-F-E-C-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Perfect podcast, all one word. Apply this discount code at checkout and you will receive 30% off your entire first order. Just visit IAMClovis.com to grab this special deal. All right, let's get on with the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Justin Null here with another episode of the Clovis Culture Podcast. I am crazy excited about today's episode, and I've been waiting for it for months, desperately waiting, and I finally have two previous podcast guests back on the show, and in the world of the Clovis tribe, these two individuals really need no introduction, Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. you honor to be here. Glad I figured out and made it. <laughs> you made it, man. That's all that matters. So, um, first things first, yeah, I mean, you guys really need no introduction here. The Clovis tribe is obsessed with you. All my private groups talk about you all the time. People have already pre-ordered the book they they just love you guys. Um, also, I have to share that I have to make sure I get this in. My dad says hi to both of you, and he hates boot so long since he's seen you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this episode will probably be um pretty pretty dense because i i I was telling Diana before we started recording that i genuinely, as you guys know from the support and everything, I genuinely believe this is one of the most important topics of our time. No exaggeration. Um, So this will be a bit more structured than some of my other episodes because I want to make sure we cover all these things. Um, So my audience is super familiar with the general concept of regenerative agriculture because I've done like hours of content on it because Diana has shared so many resources with me that I've just devoured. So rather than focus strictly on what regenerative ag is, I think we should cover that quickly, but then really use the time to cover some of the topics in the book, um, which really hit me hard because I've now had a chance to see a rough cut of the film, and I've read the entire book and learned a ton of new information, even though I was already quite studied on this, thanks to you guys. So um, I want to start by just, Rob, I've heard you say that the regenerative slash kind of nutribore... Uh, worldview is tricky because it's hard to come up with a sexy elevator pitch. So um, I guess it's really a question for both of you, but if you had to try your hardest to come up with that elevator pitch, what is that for regenerative agriculture? Three, two, one, not it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cows can eat food humans can't on land. We can't crop Mm -hmm. and upcycle it into nutrient dense food while sequestering carbon, increasing the water holding capacity of the soil, and increasing ecosystem function.
1: Okay, pretty good. Still more difficult than don't kill animals. (laughs) (laughs) And that's part of the problem we face. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Rob, how do you feel about that? I think that's great. Like some of the perspective I've had on it is it's a food system that we could come back a thousand years from now and it still functions and it functions better than it does today, and that mm. humans would be appropriately fed as as part of that, and the whole ecosystem would be made better as a consequence. Which again is about as concise as we can we can get on this stuff. You know, I mean it's a, it is not as easy as meat causes cancer, meat destroys the environment, meat is unethical, like those things are super easy to just fire them off, you know, but then mm. to, to unpack that or provide some sort of uh, alternate reality to those things, it is a, an involved process. It, if we're going to do anything other than like, uh, I, I'm rubber and you're glue, it, what bounces off me sticks to you, you know, it, it, yeah. If you if we just want to get into this world of, Meat causes cancer. No, it doesn't. Meat is the most nutritious food you could eat, and then it's we're just in this pissing match conundrum. So at some point, people do need to put a little bit of effort into unpacking this stuff, you know, and taking some accountability for what their understanding is.
1: Yeah, there needs to be an active role there, and the tricky thing too, like we saw this with all the debates that happened after Game Changers, the Rogan debates, and all that stuff. Is the other tricky part of meat causes cancer, meat is unethical, all these things is because of the the many flaws in nutrition science, these things are actually very difficult to research on your own. So someone might hear that podcast, then go Google a specific thing, and it's just a sea of confirmation bias and and mainstream. And the mainstream is very, very lopsided here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's tricky. So the other thing that I was thinking about going into this is I actually went into the film and the book for that reason, knowing how contentious this all is and the dogma on both sides. I was like, okay, let me try to pinpoint some of these key issues that virtually nobody can disagree with. And um, I'll give you my opinion on that. I think the best candidates from the book are child labor, water waste, and water pollution, and the death of bees. And the three of us here, we know that monocrop production is really horrible for all those things. You guys outline that very clearly in the book, which is awesome. Um, What do you guys think are the biggest common ground issues for omnivores and vegans alike. Diana, maybe you can start with this?
0: Well, I think um, you know, we we I did do an ask of my of my following um to people who had been vegetarian and vegan, like what was the biggest challenge in eating meat again? So I'm not really answering, I guess, directly your question, but um they all said ethical sourcing. And I think right. a lot of people um they're, they're disconnected from how food is produced. And they think that if they don't eat meat, then no death will happen or no suffering will happen for them. Mm-hmm. And so they can feel a lot, uh, just better. Um, you know, death is a scary thing overall in our culture. It's scary. Um, most Americans don't have a will, Uh, we don't have to deal with death on a regular basis. Uh, we farm it out literally to, um, you know, I mean, even human death happens in nursing homes. It doesn't happen at home. We don't have grandma in the backyard, you know, getting the chicken ready for dinner on Sunday. Uh, so we don't have to see it and we don't like to know about it. And there's a lot of people that won't eat meat on a bone, you know, Mm -hmm. um, chicken is more popular than red meat for a lot of people, because it's sort of like a tofu version of meat. Um, And I think it tastes pretty close to tofu too.
1: (laughs) It really does. Yeah. (laughs) Flavor wise. But this, Um, the the ignorance is bliss thing is huge. Yeah. It's the ethics of it. And you guys do such a great job of just outlining um, this idea of just because your intent wasn't bad or you didn't intend to cause death or something like that like Rob said earlier, there is a personal responsibility piece here. Like I think it's really important for people to understand what's happening behind the scenes. And I love that you guys um, talk about uh, chocolate and child labor, but what I see is I've pointed that out for a long time to Clovis clients about the fair trade thing. And like, hey, if you, if you don't buy fair trade chocolate, you might be supporting child labor. And what happens is their jaw hits the floor and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. So then they, they buy fair trade chocolate and just keep eating you know, three avocados a day in the winter in Minnesota, and, and they don't think about this stuff at all. They kind of miss the point. So they're still supporting this broken system because of this ignorance is bliss. So can you guys kind of d- dive into the ignorance is bliss piece and this, just the amount of death that goes into just vegetable production that people are unaware of?
0: Want to get that, Rob?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I get maybe a little. This isn't going to answer that question. I'll try to remember to come back to it. But I, you asked, what is some common ground on, say, yes. like the, the omnivore versus kind of vegan scene? And clearly, uh, notions of social justice and privilege and, and stuff like that are hot topics right now, and rightfully mm-hmm. so. And this is an interesting piece when we think about food systems, because the industrial row crop food system. Is in my mind the penultimate expression of these multinational corporations that are beholden to no government. They're su- literally supranational, they exist beyond international boundaries. Nobody is elected in these scenes. And it's been the stated goal of these folks to own the intellectual property of our food systems. And they've done a remarkably good job of achieving that goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, just with some of the meat processing issues that we've seen um four companies control 85 90% of all the meat processing that occurs in the United States two of those companies are foreign owned so there's all kinds of like kind of kind of national security concerns around the the brittleness of our our food system to say nothing of foreign interests owning huge elements of our our food system but then when we really start unpacking what does it mean for white, wealthy vegans in the United States or Sweden to say that animal husbandry is destroying the planet and is unethical? What does that mean for somebody in the middle of Mongolia? What does that mean Mm. for a a Maasai tribe member? What does that mean for somebody in, in Central America that eats guinea pigs as part of their traditional cultural food because it's just big enough to feed a family in a meal in a location where there's not extensive refrigeration. And so Mm. these traditional food systems and these many, many different ways of doing things are being made to, to look dirty and nasty and broken and subhuman. And I just think that that's a remarkable amount of hubris. So even though the end point of eat meat, don't eat meat, maybe different a real common ground is this kind of social justice privilege type concept and yeah. what what i hope that it forces people to do is to step back and ask some questions around like is it ethical for somebody for for multinational corporations to own the intellectual property on all of our food is it ethical for mainly white wealthy vegan individuals to say that anyone from any culture who their traditional food systems have included animal products, that that's broken. Is, mm. is that a, a respectful, you know, a, a, a non-privileged position, you know, when, when these right. people don't have a CVS that they can go to, to get an iron <laughs> B12 and creatine <laughs> supplement to make up for the, the shortfalls, which we also know doesn't really fix it. It just kind of stems the bleeding a little bit yeah so, so I, I think that that's a a big topic that it, again, it's gonna be kind of hot button for a lot of people because uh, the suggestion there is that eating meat may actually have some ethically laudable characteristics to it. but it's something that people need to at least try on that sweater and see if it makes sense. You can't just dismiss it out of hand and be credible within this notion of like social justice and privilege and all that. If all that matters, then all of this other stuff needs to be really closely addressed.
0: Yeah, I would just want to add to that too, because there's there's places in the um, as Rob mentioned, there's places in the world like Mongolia um, uh, where actually you can't grow crops, mm. and so if they had to go plant-based 100%, that would actually, I mean, we can control countries like Haiti with yeah. uh, rice uh, foreign aid. You know, uh, it destroys local food economies and uh, allows people to be, um, you know, dependent on the U.S. for their food. Um, There's also many places, and we mentioned this in the film, where women can't own title to land, but they can own livestock. Um, And so, you know, and, and there's a lot of places where planting crops is a very risky thing because one monsoon comes and it's done, right? Or they have to have the infrastructure to process everything. Like in the Congo, you know, there is arable land, croppable land, but it's really only suitable for cassava. Mm -hmm. And so this is a huge problem because cassava, first of all, is not a nutrient dense food. It's just like starch, right? It's like not the perfect food for humans. It it fills your belly, but that's about it. Um, But secondly, it doesn't store well. So you have to be you have to have the infrastructure set up and the congo does not to mm. um you know and there needs to be markets for it and so there's a lot of issues with that and there's there's been no evidence that taking meat away especially from children improves health outcomes and so that's where we get critical to of programs like meatless monday um vilifying meat through their propaganda that they put in the schools um and taking meat away, you know, what's wrong with having just salad one day for lunch? And it's like, well, seventy percent of those kids are low income or homeless. ten percent mm-hmm. are homeless
2: in in um, New York, right in New York yeah, City, New
0: York, yeah, um, and so, um, I would like to know what the benefit is. I want to see clinical research because from what we found, there's only been one study looking at um kids at risk meat less meat um. No in meat. a dairy supplement, right? So right. so the the group that got the meat supplement excelled in every category. So they were looking at physical achievement, behavioral shifts, and um, academics. Interestingly, the next group that did well was not the dairy group. It was actually the over-calorie group.
1: Mm, okay, so just overfed in general, probably more micronutrients.
0: Overfed was better for them than sure. being fed a supplement of milk. And when- Interesting. You know, uh, dairy can inhibit iron absorption and iron is important for uh, mental health, uh, mental growth and physical growth. And we mm. see a lot of countries where stunting is a really big deal, um, but the government is handing out milk supplements in the schools, not meat. Right. So I just think we need to be really careful, especially with, you know, um, global policies like Eat Lancet Set that are mm. um, dictating the most appropriate diet. Blanketly, for every human in the world, whether or not they're lactose intolerant, which which is another huge issue, right? right. Um, m- most people are lactose intolerant. um and and, you know, who has the privilege to push meat away? you can only do that in a well-fed, well you know relatively wealthy state. yeah um and and what is the most appropriate food in that region to be producing? if it's is it crops or is it grazing animals? So anyway, we we just went way down that social justice path there. But I think it's really, really
1: important. No, I I love it. It's crazy important. And it's particularly important because of what we're living through right now. Because, Rob, I'm so glad you brought this up. Because it really is this thing like, right now, I literally found this out yesterday. Right now, they're considering changing the name of the city of Columbus Because of its connotation with Christopher Columbus and the way he treated the natives, right? What you're literally doing with this, if we were to call it particularly vegan propaganda of a global push for this, like you're talking about, you're literally swooping in and saying, hey, savages, let me tell you how to be more civilized. And that's crazy. And it's just the... It's the lack of exposure to this information, which is why I am so supportive of this project, because it's the same thing we see in the streets right now. We have kids my age. I'm 34 now, right? There's there's people, I call them kids, but there are people running around the streets screaming, burn down the entire system. They have no replacement idea for what this system should be. And they're screaming, burn down the system while tweeting on an iPhone 11 (laughs) on Facebook. And they're wearing Nikes that were probably made halfway around the world in a place they've never seen. So it's this really crazy concept of, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and there was always food in the fridge. And like you said, I can walk into CVS and take a B12 supplement and you just blindly assume the rest of the world is this way. And I think that's incredibly, you know, it's insulting, really.
2: Well, it, it's interesting. There's emerging pushback from, from some of the World Health Organization recommendations around reducing meat. Consumption and, and meat as kind of a, a a background staple in the diet from places like like Africa where you know these people are looking at their life way and they don't have the infrastructure for for crops they're maybe in an area where crops are generally not going to do well because of cultural concerns women are not allowed to to own prop property other than livestock so there's all these complex uh, kind of interwoven pieces, but it is interesting. The developing world is where we're seeing some of the pushback on this, and you know we have some really interesting examples like Venezuela. They they were quite wealthy for a long time due to their their uh, uh, you know well. fossil fuel reserves and whatnot. And they basically did away with all their local food production. I mean, it's gone. The farmers were moved off these these locations and put into the the oil fields and brought into the cities. And then when the price of oil collapsed, which is really interesting, like we have some very smart friends, a good friend of ours, Russ Conser, who is a, a systems engineer for Shell Oil for 30 years. And ironically, he said that the death of oil would be with incredibly low prices, not high prices, not a scarcity Mm. deal. And it's just all kinds of fascinating stuff. But Mm. the long and short of it is that there are some predictions that we're going to have an Ethiopia-type famine out of Venezuela because they have no food. Like, they became 100% dependent upon, effectively, United States or, or European food exports. Mm. And this is some of the agenda that is is behind all of this, is that we would be making most of the world dependent on our outputs. And from a system that is understood to have an expiration date, uh, there is a number kicked around that we have 60 harvests left before the topsoil is gone. Diana looked and looked and looked and couldn't really find it. Like it's one of these almost urban myth things. And now it it gets recycled in movies and even in scientific literature. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows how many, uh, uh, harvests we have and it probably depends on the location, what, what is left, but it is crystal clear that the industrial row crop food system will fail at some point. It will not produce over the long haul. But yet the recommendations, what people don't understand is this vegan-centric model is basically forcing or foisting a a system that has a lit fuse attached to it. It has an expiration date. Mm. It is not something that we could come back a thousand years from now and have it still functioning. uh, But it is super sexy. It seems really reasonable. It seems highly enlightened. And again, getting back to your your first kind of statement around this, this is so much of the challenge of unpacking this. And at the end of the day, if Diana and I just, you know, did some liposuction and got got super lean and jacked, we could sell a ton of books <laughs> and and life would be good. And honestly, I don't know why we haven't done that, but um, <laughs> but you know, championing topics like this, uh it's very cerebral. It makes, it, under the best of circumstances, it makes people uncomfortable. So it's, uh, it, it's definitely a passion project. And like uh, this is where we appreciate folks like you and your community, where people actually take some interest in this and, and are, are inclined to look deeper and, and then try to share that message.
0: Yeah, and there's just so much that goes into this, and that's why we started with nutrition because we have to consider what is the most appropriate food for humans. We have to talk about neuroregulation of appetite. We have mm-hmm. to talk about protein density and nutrient density, and explain the bioavailability of of different nutrients and, and where we can get them. We have to do all of that first, yeah, uh, because there's a lot of people that are arguing ethics without an understanding of know, what happens to people when you take meat out? So, so yeah. they, did, they did a model in the U.S. where they, they took uh, what would happen if they took meat out of the system completely. And that we saw um, increased calories, which mm-hmm. we, we don't need, right? We have 70% are obese or overweight, right? You know sure. this. Um, increased calories because meat is the most efficient way of getting your protein and mm-hmm. more satiating. Um, increased carbohydrates. And then increased nutrient deficiencies mm. if we got rid of animal products in our food system
1: it's It's absolutely crazy, and that's it's you guys did a great job because I remember I was reading the book, and when I got to the ethics section,
0: yeah,
1: it is so you guys did such a great job with this. And I mean, in my opinion, just dismantled any argument for for a vegan centric food system. Um, so in my mind, I was almost like, I wish they would have led with this, like just come out swinging type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you really need to lay the groundwork because I'm people like us are sitting here going, we know these things. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, you have to understand like, what, what does it take to have as closed loop an in, in ecosystem farm as possible? Yes. And, and then once you get it, once you actually, I think the biggest um, concept that is really eye-opening is just the idea that you can't, take cattle off land and plow it up and plant soybeans and corn and wheat everywhere. Like right, right. the arable land is actually a very small percentage of our um, overall land. And that's, that's what convinced our vegan book publisher to sign the deal. With us. Oh, so. yeah. can
1: can you just explain that?
2: Yeah, they they are the people that uh, published the China study.
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that at first. I heard yeah. you guys say that on a on a different podcast. I was uh-huh. like, whoa. So, did you get like a direct response from them? Did they tell you like, hey, this is awesome, type thing? Or
0: yeah, I mean, we thought who better to bet the book than right. then and, it, and it's not just a po- uh, the China study. They do vegan tons of if you look up Ben Bella. I mean, th- that's their. vegan books is their jam.
1: Wow. That's a brilliant chess move on your part, by the way.
0: Yeah. And coincidentally, it's trending number one in vegetarian diets, our book right now too, which is just, I don't know how that happened, but it's hysterical. It
2: just shows you that the algorithms of our tech overlords are not
1: perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've duped the system. What's funny too, is like, when I think about this whole thing, uh, of the systems, that I'm talking about people that just scream and burn down the system and all that. It's like, really, if the system burns down, like you talked about in Venezuela, like Venezuela is now at the mercy of this thing, like if the system burns down, people like Diana and Rob and me with giant meat chest freezers full of meat that I killed, like, we're good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's those that are screaming the loudest that really are going to suffer from these things long term. And I just don't think that they know that. They can't know it, right? No, I mean... I,
2: it's funny whether and and I don't want to alienate people, but I uh, some people I find who are pretty religious. They have this sense that there's something, you know, stewarding the process of life and is interested in our our outcomes. And maybe they're more kind of right on the political spectrum. And then there's maybe this sense on the the left side of the political spectrum that there's either like this kind of benevolent entity of Government or people that steward things but the reality if we're really honest about this stuff is civilization is more like a a snowball rolling downhill Mm -hmm. It, It it's it's not a plan It's not remotely as planned or as coherent as what people would think and although it's very resilient in in many regards um civilization has failed in other places, you look at Cambodia, you look at, at Cuba. Um, these are places that had pretty significant technology and infrastructure and, and a, a decent standard of living. And then they had some really significant social unrest and it, horrible, horrible things happened. Mm. And this is, I mean, this is getting kind of tangential to this stuff, but it, it all kind of kind of weaves in together. But i I don't think folks really appreciate like, what does burn down the system really mean it it right. means something that none of them really appreciate and and once they had that outcome i think they would deeply regret the 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 having does that mean that we want to maintain all the current status quo no but right. but it's um it's kind of like going into a uh an old house that you want to move the kitchen and do this and do that there's it's still worthwhile to keep the bones of the building there Mm-hmm. Because the energy infrastructure and it, there's a lot that was well made there. Even though you may want to add windows and do some different updates, like the uh, bulldozing it, hauling all that infrastructure into the dump, and then starting anew. Okay, maybe that makes sense, but it's a lot more work, a lot more energy, and who knows if you're actually going to get it
1: right. Mm, right, right. And I, I've heard this. Uh, I think it was in the book, and I think you may have said it on a on a podcast as well. But um, this line, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, that's a beautiful way to put it because it really is this thing that civilization is just moving. It's moving very quickly now, especially with the exponential growth of technology and all these things. It's not necessarily that there's some big cabal giant overlord that is trying to kill us all with soy and tofu. You know, it's a, It doesn't seem to be this, this really concentrated thing. It's like you outlined in the book when um, Bill Clinton had, had sent resources somewhere and then years later, it was like, I deeply regret that. I made a poor mm-hmm. decision and messed up the local food systems. Um, so again, that, that, that idea of the path to, to hell is paved with good intentions is I think that we can all agree. There are probably some vegetarians and vegans whose, whose hearts are really in the right place. They, they actually think that they're doing the right thing. Um, and I do want to touch on this if you guys want to dig into it, um, rather than not necessarily the social justice side of things, but again, on this ethical thing, if we could touch on just the amount of death, I remember Diana, I think you told me three years ago to read the vegetarian myth. And I was like, this book is amazing, right? There, there's so much Death, so much death that goes into this stuff. Can you guys maybe touch on that a little bit for for uh, vegetable production?
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I live on a um, organic vegetable farm, and there's still tons of death. So we um, you know we use praying mantis to kill um, you know all the other little critters in there. We get ladybugs uh-huh. in to eat aphids. Um there's organic approved pesticides and herbicides. so it's it's there are, Um, bunnies that you don't want as an organic farmer. Um, There's deer that you don't want on your farm because you've got this amazing salad bar and deer are pretty attracted to salad bars. Um, There's a massive overpopulation of deer here in Eastern Massachusetts, but no one wants hunters, no one wants wolves. Huge problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the, the, these concept of rewilding you know, that's just such a fantasy because we've we've got massive problems here already with wild animals um, uh, causing car accidents and destroying habitat for birds and things like that. Anyway, okay. um, but then when we look at, uh, you know, what is required in order to grow organic kale and lettuce and all of that, it's not just leaves and um, straw. Like you actually need bone meal. You need... Uh, we use fish emulsion from Gloucester, um, fishing industry. So it's like this fish fertilizer that we use. It's really, um, awesome for the soil. Um, so, you know, we need calcium from bones. We have skulls in, in the fields that are breaking Mm. down right now that are feeding. I have a picture with some garlic, like growing out of a, of a skull. Um, and we leave that in there because, you know, we have people walking around the farm. We, they see the animals, they're rotating all around the farm, spreading their fertility everywhere, uh, upcycling, uh, food waste, you know, like Mm -hmm. broccoli that maybe, um, you know, the stems that, that weren't eaten, um, they can turn that into protein. So we absolutely have to have animals on a healthy, good regenerative type farm, um, but then when you look at, um, you know, the majority of our agriculture, so, you know, um, a lot of people who are against meat will say, oh, but your your example is just, that's just like unrealistic and small and everything. Best
1: case scenario, right.
0: So, okay, let's look at intensive um, crop production and all the life that gets destroyed there. And, you know, just to make a field, you have to destroy an ecosystem of all the, even if it was a pasture, you have to get rid of all those critters, the bees, the everything that was living there before that had tons of uh, flowers that they could go, you know, for pollination and things like that. Um, and so you have to destroy an ecosystem, whether it's cutting down a forest or plowing up a prairie or whatever, um, killing anything in its habitat that was there before. And then um, killing the soil with things like glyphosate uh, through the harvesting. I mean, just all the fossil fuel inputs, all the critters that get run over by the tractor, and then post harvest. If we didn't use tons of pesticides um, and you know things like rodent killers, our entire crop of grain would be eaten by rats. Mm. So um, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of death um, per. Her animal form, animal life. Um, yeah. is, if the life of a mouse is equal to the life of a cow, you could get five hundred pounds of meat off a cow. Right. That's a lot of food. And if that cow was in a um, farming system that was building topsoil, increasing bioavailability, attracting pollinators, um, providing habitat for birds and deer and other things like that, um, that's the death that that increases life.
1: Mm, Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's. I can't remember the number. It's crazy. it was was something that I saw that came out of this whole, the whole last year has been this giant carnivore movement everywhere. And um, there was that website, it was like carnivore is vegan, I think was the website. Mm -hmm. And it was literally citing like billions of deaths um, due to this monocropping Infrastructure. It's a really, really unbelievable thing about snakes and moles and rabbits and deer and deer fauna that bed down and get run over and all this stuff. It's really crazy. And um, it, it was great. It was, you put the story of, uh, of Phoebe in the book, Diana, was just like it's impossible to be vegan. Like it's impossible to eat if things don't die. And it's really funny. People just tend to, you know, close their eyes and eat their lettuce and all is well with the world when you're really like, like you said, one cow death. I mean, I buy like an eighth of a cow at a time. It'll feed me for months, you know? And if if the less vegetables I eat, I'm now really contributing one death. I, I don't understand why it's so difficult to get that message across though. You know, like I, I can't understand why people have such a hard time wrapping their head around that.
2: It's tough. I mean, it's legitimately tough. I, uh, I'm almost 50 years old. Chances are uh, I've got more time behind me than in front of me. You know, no matter how much uh, uh, we we hope that my my good eating and working out and all that stuff uh, benefits me, and uh, the specter of death honestly kind of sucks. I like life. I like doing a lot of lot of things. Um, uh, So there's some really uncomfortable elements to that, and what we find is that people are really really good at kind of fooling themselves that if their intent is. Pure enough that that you know that the the actual the
0: consequences don't matter.
2: The consequences don't really matter. Sure. And again, I'll, I'll actually flip this back around to um, this kind of latest social adjustment justice uprising. There have been a lot of people in in the interwebs that have made statements that they they were really trying to do something good. I'll, I'll mention Keith Norris there, um, mm-hmm. the founder of Palo FX. He said something that was a little bit goofy. It it was trying to be a little bit spiritual and a little bit this and a little bit that, but there was not an ounce of ill intent on that man's part, but a bunch of people nailed him to the wall, rightfully so, wrongfully so, I don't know, but when I somewhat defending him said the intent was not to hurt people, then, then they would come back with, well, the actions really speak. And so, if that's true, that the actions really do carry the day, then it doesn't matter what your intentionality is around a vegan diet. We have to look at the reality of how many animals are being killed in the process of making your kale and your pea protein and all the rest of that. And is that system sustainable for a thousand years? Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and it kills far more animals than a a system that is built largely around large grazing animals, fruits, vegetables, which I ironically the it's both the most nutrient dense, it is arguably the most sustainable, and it takes the least amount of life yeah, uh, so you, you know if the intentionality really um, takes a, a backseat to the the you know the, the actual outcomes, then folks really need to reassess that,
1: yeah. Wow. It's interesting, too, because I I think that this, um, you know, I I, my politics are perfectly aligned with Rob's because I know Rob's because you've been quite vocal about this in the past. Um, But this the whole vegan push and everything that we're seeing, the the unrest and everything a lot today seems to be very, very liberal. Totally cool. I'm cool with that. Right. But this liberal piece, like, again, this you want to change the name of Columbus because of this connotation, because of the way he treated the natives. And then you want to treat some natives the very same way by putting your own opinions on them. But it's not just that, because what I have been shocked about, and you did a great job of this in the book, is liberals also tend to be very, very separation of church and state. Like church belongs nowhere in anything political related, and they don't like this whole concept of religion, not knowing that veganism literally started as religious propaganda. You guys go deep into the history of that. Uh, Maybe you could just touch on that uh, briefly of of where vegan came from, because it's some pretty horrifically, radically religious people.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of people um, think about Buddhism as the origins. um, And there was um, in England this romanticism because of uh, a lot of people traveling to India. Uh, There was a romanticism that, um, you know, eating no meat meant you were more pure um and that's that's not really what was happening there it is very complicated politics on why um vegetarian and vegan india exists um, but uh, but in in buddhism um vegetarianism only happened when uh, reincarnation became a thing. The reincarnation actually wasn't always part of Buddhism. Mm. Uh, but once it was, then you might be eating grandma. So you can't, yeah. you know, uh, so that's, that's it. But the Dalai Lama eats meat yeah. um, because of his health issues. So when I hear people say, well, I'm more enlightened than, um, than you because I don't eat meat. And I'm like, really? So then you're now insulting any First Nation people anywhere. Um, the Dalai Lama, um, <laughs> you know, like that's um, that's pretty intense stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, but as far as in the U.S., the uh, vegetarian movement came out of the Seventh-day Adventists. And um, we did talk about it a little bit. I researched it like crazy because I just did a super deep dive because I kind of had to um, in order to just write the few paragraphs I did. Um, but basically this woman who arguably was suffering, uh, seizures from mercury poisoning, um, and head trauma, uh, had visions from God who told her that, um, eating certain foods would cause impure thoughts, right? Mm. So, uh, alcohol, any sort of spice at all, um, sugar, and, um, you know, there were many more things, but uh, meat was definitely one of them. That it 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 increased your sexual vitality, which was a horrible thing to do during this puritanical time. And so mm-hmm. no meat. Um, and they had these big, uh, they called them sanitariums. And they were sort of like half spa, half hospital, where they did like weird water treatments and all kinds of weird experiments. Um, but they had a solarium in there. So there was like exercise even in the winter under lights. I mean, it was like the first gyms, the first jazzercise was happening at these places. They were eating, um, you know, there was a lot of stomach problems at the time. Um, and so eliminating meat did seem to cure that. But that's only because we didn't have germ theory at the time. right? And um, and people were starting to live further and further away from farms. And they didn't realize that eating a piece of meat that was 12 days old, not refrigerated, was probably not a good idea. <laughs> um, but that's how Kellogg's cornflakes came about was um, yeah. it was actually developed at a sanatorium Um for uh you know the the customers there and then when people left they wanted to feel good still um it didn't become an ethical movement until uh this leader ellen white was like kind of wavering and she was like she couldn't really keep the vegetarian thing going so she would like eat meat and then very late in her life she was eating meat and she was on tour you know being an evangelist for the religion and someone came up and said how can you do that to the animals mm-hmm. um and so all of a sudden now it became this ethical cause for her and um that carried on through the seventh day adventist movement um the seventh day adventists were the founders of nursing they were the first founders of of the dietetics profession mm-hmm. um Uh, Because they would go around healing people and in the process, um, trying to convert them to become Seventh-day Adventists. So actually a a lot of our hospitals and nursing homes today are owned by Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, Um, The one I worked in on during my rotations, my clinical rotations was a Seventh-day Adventist um, nursing home. Uh, Anyway, so we've got this very deep um, bias against meat as an unpure, dirty thing. Mm. Um, And it is pervasive. Um, we have this whole chapter called meat as scapegoat where we dive into like why meat, you know, represents power. It's the most polarizing food in in our culture, right? It's bloody, it's red, power, it's death, you know, um, much more so than chicken, much more so than fish. Um, Cows are, you know, look a lot like a dog. They have big beautiful eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so unfortunately, um, meat is now, even worse than fat ever could have been because not only is it impure to eat it, um, and unhealthy, but it's also bad for the environment too. Um, and the same, um, you know, flawed methodologies that are used to vilify the health of meat can also be seen in the environmental case against meat. So Mm -hmm. when you dig into how is the study made, what, what, What were they really looking at? Uh, What kind of water were they looking at in this study that that shows that cattle need 10 bathtubs full of water? It's very fishy and um, largely wrong.
1: Yeah, It's, it's just really dishonest. And then to top all that off, red meat contains saturated fat and cholesterol. And I mean, I don't know about your practice, Diana, but I still have new clients to this day coming to me whose doctors tell them that saturated fat is bad for them. I don't know how this is this is still possible it's it's mind boggling to me, so it's just kind of the did, the trifecta of evil is red meat right
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah
2: we we did just get a little bit of a win on that a a big cardiology journal had a update basically saying that there's no real compelling reason to limit uh saturated fat from whole food sources, so that that's uh kind of win but but one among many many uh, uh slings and arrows that we have to
1: navigate as well. I'd actually love to get your take on that because uh, as as probably happens with you guys that came out and I just got a flood of messages like have you seen this? and it's kind of this hands in the air we just won. And I'm like whoa 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 hold up. There's a big big difference between this paper being published And the dietary guidelines from the government actually changing. I would argue that the dietary guidelines have been anti science for a very long time. So I'm not super optimistic that that's going to change anything just because there was a paper. What do you guys think?
2: I I see cracks in the facade, like the fact that this thing made it through that journal process, the fact that uh, I, I believe the president of the American Diabetes Association openly mentioned that she uses a low carb diet to manage her her, uh, diabetes. Wow. It's not to say that everybody needs to be on a low carb diet, but almost by implication, if it's low carb, then it's animal inclusive. Like you, you can do it without yeah. animal products, but it, it, it's devilishly hard to do. Um, there was one other example, but it's escaping me right, right now, but those are, you know, there's, there's some cracks in, in the walls, at least uh, the flip side of that though, is when they were putting together the dietary guidelines, which they do every every five years, when they put that together, this last go around, there was not a stitch of research related to low carb diets. And right. it, 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 it was crystal clear that they made a, a remarkable effort to exclude any of that from this review. But it, it's funny, like so much of this stuff has been turned into team sports, basically. <laughs> like it's been politicized so hard that we're now dealing with with politics and and even science as team sports. And within team sports, it's win at all costs mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it it's just a game. So you Final know if game. you're if you're not cheating, then you're not winning, and uh, you're not playing hard enough and all that. But the problem with that is when we're we're instituting massive policy changes around flawed information, it's kind of like suggesting that you should build bridges out of balsa wood versus concrete and rebar there Mm. are some realities of chemistry and physics and mathematics and when you're suggesting that humans should eat in a way that is biologically inconsistent with the way that humans should eat and again it's not to say that everybody should be high carb or low carb but there is this kind of protein minimum that we have to acknowledge as kind of a starting point Um, if you want to say that animal husbandry is universally injurious to the environment, then we need to look at giant pre-Columbian elk herds and bison herds and ask the question, why did they not destroy the planet, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it it, it leads into some things. But if we ignore all of that, then these folks are operating with flawed information. Mm -hmm. And that flawed information will fail at some point. We're trying to build a civilization on ideas that are just fundamentally wrong. And we have enough other stuff going right that we've been able to kind of daisy chain and cobble things together. But the Congressional Budget Office back in 2004, 2005 predicted that by 2030, the US would basically be bankrupt due to diabetes-related costs. and, and uh,
0: Which also have a greenhouse gas impa- impact as well.
2: So
1: that blew me away.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something that nobody talks about, like all of the surgical tubing and medications and all that that go into supporting a sick population. And and so there's just all these different layers on it. And so again, to your point, Justin, I think that a lot of people are well-intentioned, but man, they need to start. We really tried to go into this we had some assumptions around it's probably ethical to eat animals. It's probably uh, healthy. it's pro- But we tried to disprove all of that at every turn. And we had multiple, yeah. multiple things pop up. Like the, the difference in the nutritional characteristics of grass-fed versus conventional meat are not oh that God. significant. And it would have been a beautiful story to be like, man, grass-fed meat is way more nutritious and it's ethical and it's, it's sustainable. Um, but that's just not the case. And we've had people want our heads on a pike for that. They like mm. everything else, but uh, we, we got that one thing quote wrong. And I mean, we, we tortured the information 10 ways from Sunday trying to figure out how could we credibly make this statement, but it's so goddamn easy to disprove, you know, <laughs> and, and part of it also is just that meat Is nutritious, (laughs) period. Period. And what people read from that then sometimes is, well, you you support CAFO, and it's like, yes and no. If I have a family that I'm trying to help that live on the margin and they're trying to do the best thing they can for their kids, then yeah, conventionally raised meat is going to be a benefit to their children, so that they disproportionately achieve academically and physically and socially. I want that win. Because yeah. that person will climb the economic ladder, will do, will have fantastic income, and then they will support a local farmer and be able to subsidize the expansion of regenerative agriculture. Mm. But we're so prone to make perfection the antagonist of good enough, and so it's like, do you know? There's there's all kinds of arguments for modifying or or changing the the CAFO food system, but the reality is that. Cattle spend 85 to 90% of their life in the CAFO model on grass already. It is yeah. close in, in so many regards to being able to push it into a fully regenerative system. And I think that that's something that is really difficult for people to square in their minds. If we made it more accessible for decentralized butchering and processing of these animals, and then just help to educate the producers on the benefits of a regenerative system, the way that they could start layering multiple processes like the cows go through, then the chickens, then the pigs. And maybe we plant some crops on that and rotate it every couple of years and we keep that, that system going. It actually becomes a highly profitable model. Wow. But again, that the, there's, there's a lot going on with that. But I, I guess my main point to all that is we need to really, if we assume that we know the right answer, we need to really pressure test that. Because getting this wrong, and I, I just did another podcast a little bit earlier, so I'm, I'm not sure if I already said this or not. But <laughs>
0: That's where I am lately a,
2: a, a thousand years from now, if humans still exist on the planet, we will be using regenerative agriculture. The yeah. question is, will we arrive at that at an informed, conscious process, or will this be after a massive collapse and war and famine, and this is all that we're left with? And those are really the two distinguishers there. How will we arrive at regenerative agriculture and regenerative farming? Do we do it in a conscious way, or is it handed to us on the back end
1: of a, a civilizational collapse? Wow. Wow. that's it's difficult to wrap your head around and it's it's what i love that you guys cover here too like the the dialysis the diabetes all the tubing and all that stuff but when we look at these things from a high level um i wanted to get your take on this because it's it's what i'm basically calling the true cost of food is really not understood Mm -hmm. here from economic collapse and all those things like you're right i mean i think i think we spend 324 billion dollars a year just treating diabetes that's it that doesn't even include dementia alzheimer's all these other the hypertension all these other things diabetes alone over 300 billion dollars a year but what happens is um joe salatin was just on rogan's podcast and i remember i was working out and listening to this podcast and i just cringed because i understood how simplistically his what he said would be looked at, at the, the way that most people would look at it joe asked him okay sure this regenerative thing sounds great." If we, if all of us wanted to actually buy regenerative groceries, what's the price difference? And Joel said food would be twice as much. And I just cringe because I'm like, shit, you know, it's like the average person listening to that is just going to go twice as expensive. I'm out. And there's no other thought process given to that. That's the message. I don't know how to get out is it's like what what you did with the Reno fire department, Rob. It's like this idea of, it, it just seems like at the purchase, at the, at the point of purchase, You may be spending a couple more dollars versus potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on chronic medical care down the road. But again, now we have a nuanced discussion that is ridiculously difficult to portray to people.
2: Yeah, Joel, Joel did it. it, it, That's a tough one. He did a a nice job in that he mentioned that today we spend about 9% of income on food and close to 20% of income on healthcare Mm. and that. 50 years ago, those numbers were flipped. We spent about 8 to eight to 9% of income on healthcare and about 20% on, on food. So oh. um, there's going to be some increased costs somewhere around there. But what, what is interesting about that that medical side is that those costs are increasing at an exponential rate. Yes. So that is not a fixed sum. Um, that's where we are currently. And that will continue to increase in, until these medical systems fail. And this is... You know, in this era of, of COVID, there's all kinds of interesting stuff that's emerging around that. It may be that there are, are if you get the SARS-CoV-2 virus and develop the, the COVID disease, um, your immunity may not last that long. Mm. And if it doesn't last that long, then it bodes very poorly for a vaccine. And it calls into question the whole notion of a vaccine. And We've never once successfully made a coronavirus vaccine and they've yeah. they've tried many times. So that's a layer. What we are left with in that case then is that people need to be metabolically healthy, Mm. period, full stop, done. Like, and and so, uh, you know, even on that that healthcare expenditure side, we're going to have to do anything we can by hook or by crook to get people metabolically healthy. And again, for some people, that's going to be a higher carb diet. For other people, it's going to be a lower carb diet. For nobody, virtually no one will that be a, a diet devoid of adequate protein and nutrient intake. And so mm. again- or high in
0: ultra processed foods.
2: High in ultra processed foods. Yeah, it's yeah. just not going to work. The optimum foraging strategy, protein leverage hypothesis, people, if they don't get enough protein, they don't get adequate nutrition. So they continue to overeat, whether they overeat carbs or fat, and they're not gonna be metabolically healthy. So there's just so many layers to this that like we we need to get it right. And we need to pressure test these assumption and and hypotheses being thrown out there. We eat less meat than we did in the past. And Mm. granted, we've transferred it to chicken, but the claim is that chicken is way better than meat. So we should see benefits, but we're not. And, Mm. uh, uh, you know, we, in 2017 alone, I believe there were 30,000 peer-reviewed journal articles on the topic of type 2 diabetes and if we learn more about a topic we should be able to do better with the topic like if we understand material science and engineering and and all that we should build better bridges but what we, it, it, the analogy here is that we know more about the process of diabetes but yet it's getting worse yeah. how on earth does that happen you know that 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 is crazy if the only time you see something like that it's like $600 toilet seats that the military buys. Like it, it, it's just when, when crazy people are running things.
0: Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah. Diana, what are you thinking? I can tell you like itching right now. Diana's like,
2: I wish I could have picked someone else for my co-author. Rob,
0: but. shush. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, when uh, you're talking about it's twice as much. So I went on to walmart.com and looked up the price per pound of Beyond Burger versus organic grass-fed burger. Mm. Um, And one of the interesting things is the Beyond Burger packaging is much big, you know, like in a grocery store, if you buy the prepack one pound of ground beef, it's like this small little kind of brick Brick. you know Mm. but beyond burger has all this extra packaging and so it looks like you're getting way more Mm. um but they're actually selling it in half pound packages next to the full pound packages of meat real meat um but per price per pound beyond burger is twice as expensive as organic grass-fed beef wow um and then when we look at price per nutrient
1: Yes. I love this.
0: Um, You know, then you get, you get all kinds of really interesting solutions, right? So we don't have a calorie production problem. Um, Hunger is a, is a policy and, um, and, and distribution issue. It is not a food production issue. Um, What we need is more nutrient density and we need to get that into the hands of people that need it. And, You know, it's interesting here in the Boston area, they implemented this um, extra incentive for folks. They gave them extra money who were on um, EBT cards where they could get um, up to $80, I think a week or a month. Anyway, they got a lot more money to go to the farmer's markets, but it was only on fruits and vegetables, not on meat. And so, you know, and I have friends who are standing there and long, long lines, you know, customers are not coming because the lines are so long. And these long lines, uh, you know, standing in line for, you know, $12 a pound mesclun mix and, you know, organic raspberries. Mm. Uh, but yet she's standing there with liver and ground meat. And, you know, guess what? New England is really good at producing grass, like yeah. pasture. That's what it, that's what we are. Um, especially year round too. I mean, we do have some crop production in the summer, but uh, if we want to get nutrients into people who are food insecure, it needs to be more meat. It needs to, um, you know, maybe it's getting more organ meats in, into those, yeah. um, you know, areas where, you know, currently we're just exporting them all. But, um, I think there's a lot of really good solutions and, um, I don't know where I'm going with that. Exactly. But basically I just want to talk about like, yeah, price per pound, also price per like dead zone. Like those things aren't factored in either. Um, And so with between crop subsidies and then not having to pay for the downstream damage that um, is happening right now. um, But yet I'm taxed as an organic farm Mm. um, and have to jump through a lot of extra hoops and also, you know, take on the building fertility myself, um, mm. you know, as a as a cost of doing business. Um, you know, it's, it's an unfair system right now. And so what Rob and I argue for in the book is a decentralized, more regional, it doesn't have to be everyone going straight to their farmer, um, you know, can use you know, like cool Uber, maybe there's an Uber, you know, hub where, um, you know, Everyone has a backyard garden, and you've got extra tomatoes, and I've got carrots, and it goes to somewhere, and then it gets you know redistributed through a centralized distribution center or something like that. Mm. Um, but I think that there's a lot of better ways than what we have right now. Yeah,
2: we've we've, we've talked to some people smarter than us, systems engineers and folks <laughs> yeah. that that um, play in these fields all the time. And when you back at the envelope, we'll look at this stuff, decentralized food production. Coupled with the the evil entities of places like Walmart and Costco, which are logistics and distribution geniuses, like they do they work miracles in the way that they move stuff around the planet. Mm. What's goofy right now though is that we will build you know raise something in the u s, ship it to China, have it processed, ship it you know, and back and forth back and forth. What we're suggesting is a system that is much more based around locally produced food. Probably more of that local food gets consumed locally, but then the excess gets folded into this amazing global distribution network so that we can have some economies of scale and so that we we do have our, our avocados potentially in, in in the winter and stuff like that. We don't necessarily have to do away with all that stuff but there's some massive inefficiencies, not the least of which is if we continue to do the synthetic chemical fertilizer row crop centric system, everything grinds to a halt eventually. It all dies eventually. So hmm. we have to reintegrate animals into this system for it to be stable over the long haul, but it, 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 it doesn't need to be a, a turning back the clock entirely. I think that the farm of the future will look a lot like something from the mid-1800s, except when you see the electric fencing, the drones that are doing an aerial mapping survey of the water content of the grass on the pasture to figure out, do we do this paddock or that paddock? Mm. And, and, and all of that getting integrated into a, an AI-driven program to help you figure out the best resource allocation. And then we get even more efficiency out of this system that you know, folks will ask questions about can you feed the world on this stuff? And if we look at the most marginalized areas, the assumption is that we can improve production about 30 to 40%. And then in some places like where Joel Salatin lives, he gets 400 to 500% more food production out of a particular patch of dirt. So it's not a uniform thing, but uh, we can dramatically increase that, that production virtually anywhere that we are
0: yeah, and it's just stacking the enterprises too, mm-hmm. like what Rob said, so you know, the cattle go, but then the chickens follow and all yeah. that. Um, and it's also more financially um secure for farmers mm-hmm. to actually shift to. and we um we highlight the farmers in the film that, you know, started as conventional farmers and are, you know, saving their farm basically by switching to regenerative ag, you know, you have less mm. inputs, your um, carrying capacity. So the number of animals that you can actually feed on your land goes way up. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, most of the universities are not teaching these methods. And so um, mm. one of our goals actually from uh, the film, is to try to help with a scholarship fund to get farmers um, treated, uh, treated, uh, to go through the Savory Institute holistic management course. Um, Talk to them about a special fund that would be from Sacred Cow profits that would um, go to support farmer education.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, I, I want to dig into this now because the when we talk about financial incentives, what we're up against, obviously subsidies. You guys talk about the subsidies in the book mm-hmm. and things like that, and it again, it goes back to what we're seeing right now where when we see this world happening where it's like okay everybody gets a stimulus check and everybody gets an extra six hundred dollars per week on unemployment and there's all these different incentives that happen once that flow of money and we're going to see this if, if politicians want votes going forward now it's like once that spigot is turned on and that flow of quote-unquote free money is sent out it's very very hard to turn that off and i think that's what happened with a lot of these farming practices is these farmers operating on such slim margins that they need the subsidies and things like that. So I've been meaning to ask you guys about this, but I heard, um, I've been looking for, where the hell is our billionaire, right? Our team's billionaire to support all this stuff. And I heard Kimball Musk, who is uh, Elon Musk's brother, was on Mark Hyman's podcast. And I think if, if I hear this correctly, I think he said like $300 billion could convert all the farms to regenerative agriculture, which seems nuts, to most people, average people, until you go, oh, we just spent two point two trillion dollars bailing out companies from this pandemic. So, are you guys familiar with his work? And does he kind of get your seal of approval? Or-
0: no, but hold on, I got to email Mark Hyman right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we need an intro. No, seriously. Yeah, he was he was on that that the the farmers, the doctor's pharmacy, whatever. The yeah, yeah, was yeah. Like.
0: Rob and I are doing that pretty soon too. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm sitting here going, is it the Musks? Are the Musks on our side? Because I know uh, Elon Musk famously tweeted some stuff about climate change that got him into trouble, but they seem to be really on board with this.
2: I, I, I'm not super familiar with that. It's it's very exciting. Um, Rick Rubin, who's the founder of Def Jam Records, he's a yep. big fan of regenerative agriculture. Um, there is some money kind of sp- poking around the periphery of this. Mm. Uh, it's interesting in that... Because the vegan centric row crop food system is something that is highly patentable, consolidatable, et cetera, then these kind of tech mogul inclined people love to throw money into that because they can Mm -hmm. control it all and there's a potential exit and acquisition and all that type of stuff. What we're suggesting here is that millions of people would have a small farm that uh, caters to the local needs and sensibilities of their community. And that they don't need to have a debt-driven enterprise to make themselves money and to employ people at a, at a high standard of living. Nobody wants to fucking invest in that. Because yeah. what you're doing is freeing and liberating people instead of shackling them into a system that there is no escape from. So it, it really is literally going to be kind of philanthropic at, at some point. I, we've talked about the potential of... Let's run a program where it's almost like buds where, like Navy seal qualification, we're going to run men and women through the gauntlet, and whoever finishes, they're going to be in a position to be given a patch of dirt and and some resources, and then they they are taught how to do this holistic management process, and then they pay back the investment in them, and then they own the land outright and, and mm. the infrastructure. And, and then we could take youth and marginalized populations and bring these people into a, a scenario where they own the means of production and they are beholden to no one other than the people that they immediately you, you know, cater to and serve. But that's an entirely different picture than this very um, tech-friendly model of meat grown in a vat, where we own all the intellectual property, and at some point, maybe some somebody down the road is going to acquire this biz- business for a big exit. There's no, there's no analogy to that within regenerative agriculture. Nobody owns anything under the, the patch of dirt and the resources that you have there. Hmm.
1: Diana, did you want to add to that? Um,
0: no. I mean, I, I guess I was just going to add that it, it's a it's a very difficult message that Rob and I are selling as well. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Just from a funding perspective, just for this project, as you know, I struggled a lot um, Mm -hmm. because there are people out there who will back the idea of regenerative agriculture. But then once you say meat is healthy, Mm. that is untouchable. Like Mm. then I am now in this category where I'm not, being sympathetic to, um, you know, what is seen as the clean and pure diet, um, Mm. which is absolutely not true. I'm sympathetic to it. I just, I think, you know, vegan plus meat is the way to go. Right.
1: Um, which is
0: what we say. Um, (laughs) and then not only that, but we say it's ethical to kill animals. Mm. Like, oh my God, you know, so, um, pretty much I've said this before that Rob and I have six friends or two friends or something, but, um, there's very few people. I mean, you get us, um, you know, James Connolly, the producer on the film understands this completely. Mm. Um, but even, you know, where people are so siloed, you've got these people talking about the environment, these people talking about nutrition, these people analyzing water, um, these people trying to feed hungry people that don't ever talk to ag people. Mm. It's just, no one is looking at this from a holistic overall systems perspective.
1: sounds a lot like mainstream medicine to me, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's crazy. I do want to touch on that. Like, uh, you know, and this is me, totally my opinion. I'm not putting words in either of your mouths. but like, I've known you both for so many years now. And we came into, we being me and my father came into, none of this would be possible without my father. He is a saint. He's amazing. And, um, we have just had so many like screaming, mad, venting conversations on the phone because we got in this thing so early and I got to see Diane in the early stages of fundraising and, and all these things. And I'm like, how the fuck? I'm like, these companies are, I'm not going to say anyone my neighbor or whatever, but I'm like, these companies are literally 400 times bigger than Clovis. And they're like, here's $5,000. Yeah. And me and my dad were like, if I was that company, this project would have been funded from day one and we'd have six more projects lined up behind it, and we'd be funding this thing of giving people a patch of dirt and educating them, this BUDS program. It's like literally in my mind, as I try to make Clovis successful somehow, which I'm doing my damnedest, but it's tough as shit, right? I'm like, if I become this hundred millionaire person like some of these other people, I'm just like, I'm literally always gonna have Robin Diane in the back of my head. Like, what are they working on next? Here you go. I cannot figure out. Why it's so difficult to get these massive companies, particularly companies that make meat that is their their job.
0: I have been so rejected yes. <laughs> by so many meat companies that you would think would be totally on board um so like Applegate has been amazing, Epic mm. has been amazing um yeah, ancestral supplements is one of the few very small companies that I was like, "Are you sure you're really gonna give me that much money because they mm. they're they're small and they they were just so generous. Um, and, but I had a lot of no's um, yeah. and a lot of, uh, a lot of people are going to benefit from this. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about that.
2: Which is frustrating because literally nobody is championing this the way that Diana has for these people. Yes. And so it's kind of cowardly. And
1: yeah, the
0: we were going to, Rob's idea was to have a list of all the no's.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that idea and that's yeah. the thing is especially like when we first met it's like again without my dad not possible Clovis is so tiny that my company is so small like I'm shocked you guys are here on the podcast with me for real I always laugh at uh that Rob's six listeners joke that he says on his podcast is only true on my podcast so thank you <laughs> but it really fucking used to irritate me like to no end I'm just like how is this possible and then I think about like this the concept, of, again, we talked about the elevator pitch, but how do we just appeal to the masses in a way that's sexy? Like the, the way that I that I kind of explain this is like this kind of a, a side story, but I went to Berkeley College of Music. You guys know this. I've been a musician my whole life and everything. And um, in school, one, I had one professor that was like, this is how you monetize your talent, right? And I clung to him. I went to every office hours with this guy, crazy. And because at Berkeley, you have all this masturbatory music making, like all these musicians want to make the most complicated jazz music to impress the other musicians. Right. And, and this is what I see in terms of the messaging of regenerative agriculture and the elevator pitch that I get concerned. I'm like maybe is it a change in 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 the messaging? Because me on the flip side, I'm watching these starvist starving artists making this jazz music. And I just went and made bubblegum pop music. And the next thing I know, I got like music and TV and films, and I'm a six-figure guy in in my 20s because I just simplified the message. And those Berkeley kids would look at my music and be like, no, that's lowbrow music, right? But the messaging worked really well for the masses. So that's what I wonder is when we have these conversations that are so nuanced and you guys are so honest and you're so careful to dissect every single aspect of it, it becomes this really difficult to grasp discussion. And then the vegans are like, here's an animal with no skin on it. And they kick our ass. And what the hell, like the mom dumping cigarettes into the child's breakfast plate and kicking our ass again. Or you literally put an MMA fighter on a podcast to yell at Chris Cresser. Like, holy shit, man, we're just getting beat up. So is it, is it a messaging problem? Like, is there a way to find a happy medium between tugging at heartstrings while also being honest and nuanced? I don't know if it's, if it's possible.
0: Well, that's why I did the film. So, so yeah. um, I mean, the book is going to reach people who are interested in reading a really dense <laughs> book. I mean, we yeah. tried to make it approachable. There's lots of illustrations in there. I think we, we wrote it in a way that's accessible to people who don't have a master's degree. Yeah. Um, but uh, But realistically, who's going to pick that book up if they're young and maybe just kind of heard that, you know, meat is not a good thing and, um, you know, so I really, that's why I felt so strongly that we needed to do the film, Mm. Um, which is is still information dense, but we have some really great animations in there. We've got, I mean, this thing behind me is completely animated behind Nick Offerman. So um, Ron Swanson, actually J- Jason Roundtree is the one who animated that, our voiced over that one. But, you know, oh, cool. that's how we got Nick Offerman on board is because we, we felt like, you know, not only does he love regenerative agriculture, but he might pull in some younger people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's super powerful. And, and I, I love that you brought that up too, because we obviously spent a lot of time going over the book and it's, it's funny, even, even having conversations about the book. Becomes this really lengthy, in-depth, yeah. nuanced conversation. That we didn't,
0: we didn't hit any of your questions. On
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I mean, I, I've seen the film as well, and well, a, a very rough cut of the film. Diana's now told me that it's that it's updated. Um, so, where do you want to share any of where you stand with That the, the documentary film. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So um, we're talking to distributors now um, and what we're able to do, which is super exciting um, and our publisher has kind of agreed to, to help us out with this. Um, anyone who pre-orders the book is um, if they submit a screenshot of their receipt um, to our website. So it's sacred cow.info slash book. Okay. Um, you, you'll see a link in there where you can upload your, um, your receipt. And we will actually um, give you a preview link to the film before anyone else gets to see it. So Very I, cool. the film is scheduled to be done like late July, early August. Um, and so you'll be first in line um, along with the folks who were part of the crowdfunder. I also promised them. Um, and I actually just did the credits because I put name, you know, name and credits. And wow, the editors are really mad at me, cause that was like, thousands of names you know it was really amazing to see how many people were were on that list um we also have tons of other giveaways too i mean um we're doing a cookbook rob has a, a flavor guide i have four and a half hours of interview footage that didn't even make it into the film um with all kinds of really interesting people and then we have uh discounts on like meat and um other cool stuff that folks can get so it's It's at least $200 worth of stuff, um, just for pre-ordering the book, which will help us out because we're trying to get this book, you know, the clustered sales, um, as close to release date as possible to try to get as much press as we can for this. And Mm. some part seems to be working already. Like Amazon is already promising to do some pretty heavy promotions for us, Um, Mm. So, uh, so yeah, so if if folks want to see the film, they can, um, register, uh, with their receipt and be first in line.
2: It's been a little bit of a dodgy time for us with COVID, you know, bookstores are generally closed. Mm -hmm. Um, Amazon is kind of ramping back up to a little bit more normal of a, uh, production distribution cycle and all that. But when we were, I don't know, maybe a month and a half, two months ago, like our, our publisher was pretty scared because bookstores are closed. Amazon's not really ordering. They didn't want to sit on a a massive pile of books that weren't going to sell. And we, even though it's been challenging at various points to get like the financial backing and stuff like that, we do feel like the book in film tells such a great story and it aligns with so many people's self-interest that we will get a lot of support. And the danger in that is that we could sell out of the book and then it, it, if- That inhibits we, people from- mm-hmm. we, we would be on the New York Times bestseller list and then fall off because yep. you can sell all kinds of books, but they have to actually be shipping for them to count. So if people are inclined to get the book and you you can uh, do it early, not only will you get all of these, these kind of bonus, um, awesome uh, things, but it's also really helping to- send a message to our publisher, to the bookstore folks, and, and Amazon, perhaps most importantly, that there is interest here and that they should make a significant order and all that type of stuff.
1: Okay. So w- while we're on this topic, my, my fans are diehard Clovis fans and diehard Diana and Rob fans. So I want to be very clear here. Cause I had asked Diana about it in an email like a month ago. She's like, Oh, maybe we should wait a little bit. Like I want the timing in this to be perfect. Like my people, I have people with Clovis tattoos. They are going to do what literally, I'm not kidding. They will do whatever you tell them to do. So like specifically tell my tribe, like, do we go pre-sale right now? Do you want me to wait to a certain date or what do you think?
0: Yeah, uh, they have until July 14th to submit their receipt in order to get okay. the link to the film. Um, so the sooner they do it, the better, uh, just because Perfect. then Amazon can uh, go ahead and make more orders. Um, and, and it's also available on other sites, too. Um, we mm-hmm. just keep saying Amazon because that's just they kind of have the market in books. But, uh, you know, it's available through Barnes & Noble and IndieBound and um you know, other online sources as well. And I think bookstores are starting to open up, but uh, but it's those pre-orders and those very early, early sales that are um, really going to help us out the most.
2: And, and we do get this question, what helps more uh, print book or digital? Mm. The print books generally, we you never know the exact algorithm, but it tends to count like 10 to one versus a, a mm. digital purchase. And then one final thing, if you are thinking about ordering more than one book at a given time, if you can make separate purchases, order it, send it wherever, order in different ones, send it wherever. Um, it then each of those counts individually. Whereas if you buy book five books all at once, it counts as one book. Oh, that's
1: very good to know. For for like the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, so I can stack yeah. up for like uh Christmas gifts. I'll do early Christmas yes. shopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad we touched on that. And if if you guys are cool to uh stick around a little bit longer, I did want to Dig a little bit into now that we're getting to the practical stuff. Like the three of us are nerds. Let's just admit it, right? We'll sit here all day and talk about this stuff. So, um, I do want to give a little bit of practical. You, you guys did a fantastic job. I mean, you had to dissect what you did in the, the first three quarters of the book. And then you do a pretty good job of laying out this idea of a Nutribore diet, which is amazing. And like, um, Diana, I don't know if I've even told you this, but we had so many personal conversations when I was first starting out. Um, you were really pivotal. I remember with my own personal studies. I had come to a point with Clovis nutrition plans where I was like for obese individuals, I wanted to start at a baseline of 30% calories from protein and was almost like having imposter syndrome because all of the keto world was screaming at me that that was terrible. And I talked about on the phone, you were like, oh, hell yes, do it. And then you introduced me to Marty Kendall and like the nutrient density piece and all that. So I do want to give people um, some just kind of brass tacks information on this NutriWare diet that you guys put forward in the book.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, when you take emotion out of it and just look at what um, are the most nutrient dense foods for humans, it actually perfectly aligns in in the Venn diagram with uh, the most regenerative type foods um, to be grown, the most ethical foods, you know, I mean, it all, it all fits. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what we see is, um, and we have this little matrix, maybe I can just describe this meal matrix, but basically pick a protein as, uh, you know, I, we encourage people to just buy the best animal protein they have access to. So it doesn't have to necessarily be beef. Actually, we only pick beef because it's the most vilified of the animal proteins, but, uh actually fish is my favorite food um, mm-hmm. uh, for protein. Uh shellfish is even like totally just off the charts, like amazing. Um mm-hmm. so you pick your protein, you pick a fat to cook it in, you pick a vegetable, and then maybe an herb and a spice. And so if you don't like um ground meat with broccoli cooked in ghee with some basil and black pepper um, just flip that matrix. And uh, if you do a 10 by 10, then I can't remember. Oh, I'm going to reference my handy little guide that That I think you probably got. I did. Yeah. Let me see here. Is the meal matrix even in here? I thought it was. Oh my gosh. It's not. (laughs) <laughs> what a Bummer.
1: Um, dun, dun, anyway, dun. it was like
0: a new, you know, uh, if, if you did that for dinner, it would be a new dinner for 105 years. Or if you did it for every meal, it would be a totally different meal for like 35 years or something like that. Wow. Wasn't it something like that? Um, yep. Yep. Rob, uh, and so, um, so we just kind of go through like, you know, between proteins, you know, best choices, nutrient dense wise, and then how to find the most sustainable options of those. Mm -hmm. We just go down the line, um, you know, uh, fruits, you know, berries, seasonal berries are one of the best bets, um, nutrient density wise and, um, you know, sustainability wise, uh, you know, so we kind of go through all of those foods. We encourage prioritizing protein. So, Mm -hmm. um, we recommend about double the RDA of protein. So, Um, starting at, you know, just baseline, 100 grams of protein per day um, and going up from there. um, I eat more than that. Robbie's way more than that. But uh, not one person that walks into my nutrition office is anywhere even close to 100 grams of protein.
1: Oh, I totally Um, agree. I see the same thing.
0: And so when we, we prioritize protein and take out the processed foods, everything just, falls into place pretty much. Yeah. I mean, th- those are the two big, in fact, that's that's what people pay me to tell them after a whole hour of explaining their lifelong saga with food. yeah, just eat eat a lot more protein, dump the processed foods, and away they go.
1: That's it. I, I love the simplicity of it too. I, I love just trying to explain to people how much simpler their life is going to be, the way you just leave uh, uh, ex- explain that matrix, right? It's so simple. There's this crazy thing. We live in this crazy world right now. Obviously, you know I have keto Masterclass and everything too, Rob, where people come into diet nutrition just thinking that all of a sudden they need six paleo cookbooks and every meal has 21 ingredients and a two-hour prep time. I'm like, you need a skillet and a veggie and a meat, and you're done. Like it's literally that. And that I think that's kind of the elevator pitch of just like simplify your life, you know? Absolutely. And that's where the
2: the food matrix was kind of born out of a moment of desperation in, in our gym ages ago where one of our, our really tr- problematic clients initially, uh, one day she was just like, I'm just bored. And I was mm-hmm, like, yep. bored? What do you mean bored? And, uh, I'm bored of this stuff. And I'm like, did you ever get bored of bagels? And, you know, and, and no. And so it's not bored, it, it's something else. And this is where I penciled the food matrix on on there. And, you know, with just a few... Few meat options, few vegetable options, which you can have those in the freezer if you want to, some different types of fats, some different herbs and spices. You have literally hundreds of different options. And if you just went, you know, like beef loin cooked in broccoli, coconut oil, garlic versus ginger versus paprika versus basil, it's an entirely different meal. You know, yeah. and you're only changing one variable there. And holy smokes, we could add more than one spice. You know, we mm-hmm. could we could two do vegetables. more than one vegetable. Yeah, two yeah. vegetables. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. And so it, it it it's a great point, point. and I think that that's probably the the most powerful jumping on place for for folks is to understand that you just build build things from protein whatever type of vegetable matter makes sense, good quality fat, the herbs and spices that you enjoy. And that'll be 95% of your meals. Never once in a while you do a real extensive thing where you need to get the unique ingredients and all that yeah. type of stuff. But if, if you try to do that with every single meal, unless you're independently wealthy and have the time to do it, or can pay a chef to do it, like you're gonna, you're gonna flame out
1: and you're gonna, you will get bored with what you're doing. 100%. I think of the fancy meals as community. It's like if I want to get together yep. and drink a drink a glass of biodynamic wine and cook a big meal for my family on Sunday or something, sure, you know, get complicated with it. That's kind of the way I see it. So as I've taken up your entire day and will continue to selfishly steal your time, mm-hmm. there's there's one other thing I want to touch on because it, I, I was wondering as I was reading the book, I was like, I wonder if they're going to touch on this. And I've been wanting to pick Rob's brain about it forever. And Diane, I want to get your take on this too, because you both have been vocal about this. So this is a selfish question for me. I've, I've been obsessed with this and obsessed with the work of uh, Ted Naiman. And like, I've really been digging into this for like a year right now. And that's total food intake. It's driving me crazy. And the, I think the reason it's driving me crazy is because at this point, I think, and Rob, you got me started on my biochemistry studies years ago with the lecture notes on human metabolism. And it was just, I went full bore from there and, and it was, it's been great. But I'm digging into this thing going, I really think that virtually everything we think we know about calories is completely wrong. And I I look at it thinking that even remotely accurate nutrition science has only been around for a few decades. So since the time that we've all been on a standard American diet and it's like everyone's been malnourished and underfed and all these things. So we still have these general guidelines of everything being based on 2000 calories per day but I've heard both of you talk about this. So Rob, I've heard you on The Healthy Rebellion saying things like people on keto gains like Louise seem to do very well with fewer calories than mm-hmm. maybe needed on a standard American diet, and Diana's been very vocal about women not eating enough food and not meeting their micronutrient levels. So either one of you can t- I'd love to get both of your takes on this, but is it possible like I mean like do protein calories even count or like is it possible that we have the whole calorie piece whether we're mainstream or alternative that just everyone has this wrong
0: i mean rob and i have pretty much the same answer on this um okay. it you know it, to some extent calorie overall calorie intake does matter mm-hmm. um uh it, but when we see protein i mean there's it it's it's more work for your body to digest it and uh, it's more satiating and so um, you know, when we see people eat more protein, you generally see intake of other foods go down because they're just so satisfied. And I think um, you know, satisfying your micronutrient status too is trying to get you know, getting onto chronometer.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I always say that word wrong, and just Me tracking.
1: <laughs> did I
0: say it right this time?
1: Yep, I think yeah. so. Yep, yeah, yep.
0: Yeah. yeah, uh, you know, you can track. Uh, that's my favorite app because you can track not only calorie intake and fat intake and everything, but you can track micronutrients. So you Mm. can see what um, your iron intake is, what your B12 intake is and everything like that, and really totally geek out on it. And and, um, that can certainly drive your food choices. Um, And, you know, we hear a lot about... um, you know, lettuce per calorie being nutrient dense, for example. Um, and there was one time where I was doing this nutrition challenge and I needed something, some copper or something like that. And I had read that escarole was really high in it. I think it was copper or selenium or something. And so I went and I bought the last package of escarole. I went to like two different stores and I ate like all this Mm escarole and I got like 5% of my, (laughs) intake and i was like ah because you have to eat so much lettuce to even get to 100 calories worth of lettuce right Right, right. um so the one great thing about animal foods is that you you don't have to take in too much volume in order to get the micronutrients that you need so Mm. um so i don't know if you want to add anything to that rob i mean i think people can get into trouble with calories when they're overeating nuts and seeds. Um, and, and so at some level at fat, overeating fat is like a really great way to, um, load up on calories without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it is important to keep that in check, but you can go for like a week on chronometer and just kind of track it all, optimize your protein, make sure you're hitting that level that makes you feel satiated, kind of get that down for a week or two. And then you don't have to track every single day. You kind of, understand what meals need to look like in order for you to um, be on track.
2: yep I can't really add anything to that.
1: yeah perfect. okay, cool, cool. yeah, I, I guess I think about it more like I have these t-shirts in Clovis that say eat whole foods change the world. And I really think that's the thing is like if you're sticking to foods that actually exist in nature, like the idea like you're never hiking in the woods and stumble upon a bagel tree and it doesn't happen, right? so it's it's that kind of idea of if you're sticking to whole foods as they exist in nature the piece that confuses me is a caloric surplus. Because I'm like, if I give you a caloric surplus, 4,000 calories a day at Twinkies, you're going to get very fat over time. But if I give you a caloric surplus of wild-caught salmon and, and you know, ribeyes, you're not going to gain the same amount of body fat. It's just not going to happen. So how can the argument be made of like a caloric surplus will make you get fat? It just, it boggles. I mean, mind.
0: It, to some extent it, it will. Um, but the other side of that is that, I there's no way I could eat four thousand calories of salmon. Yes, like exactly. I, you can't do it, um, right. Because you're just it. It's impossible. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to add to that, Rob. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, this is where the the um, palate fatigue and optimal yeah. foraging strategy kind of comes in uh, in my. A Second book, when I talk about Adam Rickman, Man Versus Food, like he's eating uh, an ice cream sundae and he bogs down on it and orders a plate of extra salty, crunchy French fries and is able to eat this eight-pound ice cream sundae by juxtaposing the palate experience of, um, you know, uh, uh, ice cream versus, versus French fries. And in the standard dietetics kind of world, it's kind of mind blowing because he probably eats a thousand, 1, twelve hundred calories of French fries, mm. but he would have never finished the ice cream without the addition of those French fries, and that's right. kind of this really mind blowing deal. Um, I, I think a lot of what you're you're poking around the edges. Protein definitely doesn't count the same way from a thermodynamic perspective. Like maybe it's Mm. like 40% of the label claim on calorie due to the, the inefficiencies there. Um, And and there've been some interesting overfeeding studies where uh, folks, and it was devilishly hard to get them to do it, but they overate 500 calories or whatever of protein versus carbs versus fat. And the the protein was very difficult to store. And mainly what it led to was improved lean body mass changes.
1: Exactly.
2: Um, yeah. And uh, the excess carbohydrate led to some stored body fat. But carbohydrate too needs, it will fill up glycogen stores and, and you know, then mm-hmm. it will get uh, converted into fats. But overeating fat is a really quick way to get super chubby and a beautiful mm-hmm. way to do that is to have both fats and carbs. So again, you get that, that flavor combination uh, that, that really facilitates the ability to overeat, which again, if we are sticking with mainly simple, minimally processed foods, it's kind of hard to get that. You know, this is mm-hmm. some of the hazard, I guess, for some people for like sweet potato with their steak and veggies. Like there's enough flavor options there that it starts getting kind of, kind of interesting. And so some people Mm -hmm. either do a little bit of portion control or maybe some meals are mainly protein and carbs and some meals are mainly protein and fat. And then we we kind of stay one lane or the other on on almost like a nutritional self-defense approach.
1: Yeah. That's that's why I love the protein to energy ratio so much. It's great. Because I I remember looking at a study that Ted Naaman had cited and Marty Kendall had talked about it too. It's like they gave people like 4.8 grams of protein per kilogram of, mm-hmm. of body weight for this study and i ran the numbers on myself it would have been a, a daily caloric surplus of 1100 calories from protein and their body composition improved right. more lean mass less body fat and i'm like this is this is a massive caloric surplus it just breaks your brain you're like okay you know but it just it kind of drives me nuts cuz i've been trying to uh, just tinkering with some body composition stuff lately and mm-hmm. just trying to figure out where where everything lands with me but Yeah, I appreciate you guys touching on this. And I appreciate you sticking around for as long as you did. Thank you so much. This was a marathon. Um, I love you both. I love your work. I love the impact you've had on my life. My clients have have you to thank for a lot of my work and the things that the rabbit holes you guys have led me down in terms of my personal education. So I can't thank you enough for that. And I also would love for you guys to tell listeners how to connect with you both individually. So Diana, maybe you can start us off there.
0: Instagram would be at sustainable dish. And then um, all the book stuff is at sacred cow.info. And then my nutrition stuff is at Sa- uh, sacred is that sustainable dish.com.
2: Perfect. Rob. Uh, almost everything I'm doing is over at the healthy rebellion. Now it's join I poke around Instagram a little bit at Dos Rob Wolf, but I think i'm gonna liquidate all that stuff really soon so yeah. I'm, I'm about ready to play the disappearing game
0: oh you've been saying that for a while yeah 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 mm-hmm.
2: well i had to wait <laughs> i had to wait for our book to get out before right, i could do right. it otherwise yeah, you would have hung again. me out to dry
0: <laughs> right right
1: well i'm a proud member of the, of the healthy rebellion people have seen me rocking my t-shirt and everything and it's it's great conversation in there so i highly recommend people jump in there as well and um again just can't thank you guys enough. Thank you for being here and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I haven't stolen all of it just yet. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you guys. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I know it was dense and the crazy thing is we didn't even cover a lot of the topics that we set out to discuss when we initially set up this conversation. For instance, we didn't even really cover the fact that we now have studies showing that regenerative agriculture actually sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. A potential solution to help reverse climate change. And I'm sharing this point with you now because it helps illustrate that there are so many benefits to regenerative agriculture that it's virtually impossible to discuss all of them in a single conversation unless we were to just record for six hours straight. This is why I think it is absolutely critical that you grab a copy of the Sacred Cow book, read it, and watch the documentary film once it is released. Of course, continue following me and all things Clovis at the Clovis Culture on all social media platforms to stay up to date. I will be updating you as I get updates on the release of the book, on the release of the film, and any and all things associated with this project. Also, as you heard at the end of the episode, you can follow Diana Rogers at Sustainable Dish on Instagram. Her website is also SustainableDish.com. You can find Rob at RobWolf.com. You can follow him on Instagram at DasRobWolf at D-A-S-R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F. And you can check out his amazing platform, of which I am a member, at join.thehealthyrebellion.com follow all 3 of us on all social media platforms, shoot us a message, let us know we have your support or just say hi, say what's up, we all love that and we're all very active on all of our platforms. And again, please head to Amazon right now. Turn this episode off, go to Amazon, pre-order multiple physical copies of Sacred Cow. You'll get a ton of amazing bonuses, you'll get a preview link to the film, And more importantly, you will be literally voting with your dollars and letting the powers that be know that you support this type of content and that you support regenerative agriculture. Remember, for all the show notes from this episode, you can head to iamclovis.com slash sacred cow and visit sacredcow.info. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to me. Now, let's get out there and support this project and scream it from the rooftops because Diana and Rob are just incredible human beings and they're doing amazing work with literally the future of humanity in mind. I really can't think of a bigger topic than this, I'm telling you. So please, please support this however you can and I will see you here next time on the Clovis Culture Podcast. Thanks for listening. my way, I felt something, something out there, but a way, way too.